the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to another day on the show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And as you know by now, we, every day at 4 o'clock, take your phone calls and answer your Bible questions. Um, We want you to know Jesus. So uh, whatever's on your heart or mind, whatever questions are rattling around, we would love to have your calls. You can call us with your questions by dialing 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also call us toll-free from outside the local area by calling 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're in your car and driving, the safest way to call us, use the free KSLR mobile app. Uh, You will be connected directly to our studio producer by the push of a button. It'll say call now, and you can do that. One more time, 340-9585. Because it's Tuesday, we don't have uh, anything going on, so let's get right to some questions and remind you again. It worked yesterday, by the way. I asked you to call early instead of calling everybody calling late, and we got a bunch more calls on, so if you have questions, we would love to have your calls. Here is the first question today. Rachel wants to know, why did Mary wash Jesus' feet, and was it his mother Mary who did it? Rachel, it was not his mother Mary. Um, This is Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha, the sister of Lazarus, who was raised from the dead. Uh, She was the one who washed Jesus' feet. Now, why she did it is important, and I'll take a couple of minutes to answer this just because this is an exceptional story. We encounter Mary of Bethany three times in the New Testament, and all three times she's at the feet of Jesus. Now, that's significant. It's a, it's a place of worship. She understood who he was. She understood who she was relative to, to uh, who Jesus was. Now, the first time we see her, she's um, at Jesus' feet when um, Martha is busy preparing, her sister Martha is busy preparing uh, for Jesus' visit. And Martha says, Lord, tell my sister to help me. I'm doing all the work here. And all the while, Mary was sitting at his feet, soaking in everything that he had to say. Remember what Jesus said? Martha, Martha, you are troubled by many things. Mary, however, has found the better part. Why? Because always being with Jesus should be the priority. The second time that we encounter Mary of Bethany was when Jesus arrived after her brother Lazarus had died. She fell at his feet. Even in her grief, that was her place. And then the final time, of course, is this time. And the reason she's doing it is because she's preparing Jesus' body for burial. Jesus called what she did, Rachel, a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing. 
So three times we see her, three times we find her at the feet of Jesus. Now, all of that to say this. Mary of Bethany had even more spiritual insight than those who were closest to Jesus. James and Peter and John. Those who were, we call them his inner circle. But the other nine as well. Mary understood that Jesus was going to die for the sins of the world. While the others were still in denial, she got it. Now, here's my point. Rachel, when you sit at the feet of Jesus, you're going to have spiritual insight that other people don't have. When you sit at the feet of Jesus, you're going to learn more like him, to be like him and more about him. And that's the way we encounter Mary. Three times she's found at the feet of Jesus. That's why she washed Jesus' feet. Wouldn't you like it to be said of you if there was another Bible going to be written? And it's, there's not. But wouldn't you like it, if there was, for it to be said about you that you were always at the feet of Jesus? I'm reminded of the Apostle John that when he was a disciple, he's always the one closest to the Lord. He was young, he could run fast. Maybe when it was time to sit down, he hurried to that place because he always wanted to be next to Jesus. And especially when they reclined at a table, it was as though John's ear, his his head was right on Jesus' heart, chest. And I always think about John being the only man who's ever lived who heard the physical heartbeat of God. Maybe that's why he called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. I think Mary was a whole lot like John. So thanks, Rachel. But it was not his mother, Mary. It was Mary of Bethany. Here is a question uh, that came in anonymously. Um, Pastor Ron, I think I know what you will say to me, but what is the real meaning of life? Well, If you think you know what I'm going to say, if you called me, I'd say, well, what do you think I'm going to say? I'm going to tell you the real meaning of life comes from Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. When Jesus is being worshipped in heaven, and the angels, and by the way, you and me, are saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure... They are and were created. So anonymous, the reason that we were created, the meaning, the real meaning of life is to worship God, to to bring him pleasure, to have fellowship with him. Think about the links that Jesus went to, to have relationship with people like you and me. You know, Jesus, when he was born, his parents had no hope for him of being a successful businessman or getting a great education or marrying and hopefully providing grandchildren. Jesus had no hope of any of those things, the, the things that we value in, in the world that we live in. None of those things mattered to Jesus. He knew that his job was to do what pleases his father. Well, in exactly the same way, while it's true that we have lots of things, good things that are going to happen to us, Some will go to college and get a good education. Some will serve their country. Others will be men and women of virtue and integrity. Some will be successful, wildly so. But those things are nothing more than benefits of finding the real meaning of life, and that real meaning is to worship Jesus. For his pleasure, we were created. When we forget that, Well, Anonymous, that's when we get into trouble. Jesus created us to walk with him. He bought us out of our sin when it appeared that that relationship goal was never going to happen, at least from a perspective of earth. So he bought us back. Why? So that we could please him. We know that without faith, it's impossible to please him. So we have to work on faith. We've got to exercise our faith and let Jesus smile at us. So if you think 
That was what I was going to say. You're right. But if you think there's any other meaning in life, you know, the purpose of my life isn't to be a pastor. The purpose of my life isn't to go to church. The purpose of my life isn't to try to be good or do good. The purpose of my life is to please my Jesus. And when we do that, God takes care of all of the other things. And whatever then his plan is for you, Anonymous, it will be the only place on earth that you want to be. So I hope that's what you thought I was going to say. 340-9585. Here is another anonymous question that just came in on our mobile app. Uh, Pastor Ron, do you believe that an ecumenical approach is beneficial for your church or group of churches? Anonymous, absolutely, unequivocally, no. Amos 3.3 says, and it's a great principle for us to remember, it has so many applications. How can two walk together unless they agree to do so? And an ecumenical approach to our faith, our Christian faith, would suggest that it doesn't really matter what one believes about the Bible or even what one believes about Jesus. But we can all just get along. We can get along and go along together. The truth is, according to the Apostle Paul, doctrine matters. He told Timothy to watch his life and doctrine closely. Now, that does not mean, Anonymous, that I can't love others who are different than we are. But you see, and I'll only speak for my church, Calvary Chapel, we are affiliated as a group of churches, and the one common thing above all other things is that we believe the Bible is the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God. And the Bible gives us everything that we need for life, for love, for doctrine, for correction, just for living. Now, if somebody comes along and says, well, let's let's all get together and do this common ministry, but there are people that don't believe what I believe about the Bible. What value could there be in that? I think, and by the way, Anonymous, those who are ecumenical are almost unanimously a group or belong to groups of churches that don't believe the Bible is the Word of God. So no, I don't think an ecumenical approach is beneficial at all. Now, it's not to suggest that our church is the only church that's right. I'm not talking about minor differences. I'm talking about major doctrinal differences, essentials of the historic Christian faith. Those are the people, those are the people that we can walk together with, that we can serve with. Let me take just another second to to um, um, look at it from a different perspective. Uh, and again, just I'm talk, just talking about our church. I'm not really interested in coming alongside other churches for ministry. Nor do I want them or need them to come alongside the ministry that God has called us to do. I think one of the great benefits of having a diverse body of churches, by that I mean there's churches that are really, really different than ours, but they're really good churches. But God gives each of us a path to walk. And my path isn't to walk the path that other people and other churches walk. My path is to do exactly what God has told us to do here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. And as we do what God has told us to do, then he's going to be pleased with us. And we fulfill that, that role that he's always imagined for us. If I go chasing after what other churches are doing, well, then I'm leaving a hole in the work that God wants to do through us. And eventually he's going to have to find somebody else who will do it if we're not going to be faithful to do it here. So the things God has asked us to do, I would never ask another church, and um, most of you listeners know this, but I would never ask another church to have a free school or a free family practice doctor office or any of the other things that we do for free. These are the things that God has asked us to do. And the only way I could call somebody else along to do that would be to say, well, if God's called you to do it, then I can help you because of our experience. 
but we really don't need to, to come alongside other Christians because they're walking their route, I'm walking ours. And in the process, God gets everything that he wants to get done. All of that's accomplished. So an ecumenical approach would be harmful, not just not beneficial, it would be harmful. And I want the people who come to my church here to know that we take the Bible very, very seriously, and we're always going to do it. So I hope that answers your question. Here is a question from Rose. She just called into the studio. Would becoming a Mason hinder the spiritual well-being uh, and relationship with God? Yeah, Rose, it would hinder it for sure. Now, I want to be clear here. Um, Being a Mason does not disqualify somebody from being a Christian. I think there is a lot about um, um, the Masonic Lodge that is contrary to, in fact, even in contradistinction to the Word of God. Uh, I think it would be problematic for somebody to um, belong to a group that stands at odds with much of what our Bible says. Um, But uh, realistically, um, we have to understand that God has people everywhere, and I'm sure there are some real Christians who are Masons. But the problem is most of the time, their primary loyalty would be to the Masonic Lodge. Uh, They take oaths that they're not supposed to take. They keep secrets that they're not supposed to keep. And I think anytime you walk in the darkness or walk near the darkness, Rose, I think you're going to find that your walk with Jesus is being hindered. Being a Mason is not productive in terms of producing good fruit for the kingdom of God. It's divided loyalties. And I would say, and I have had many opportunities to counsel uh, men who were Masons, and my response would always be, um, here's what masons say here's what the bible says you have to make a choice and those who stay with the masonic lodge i have found do not produce fruit for the kingdom of god they're not walking according to the spirit of god but instead they're walking um in this world and i think anytime you're double-minded like that i think there's going to be a problem i'm not suggesting that you are not a christian if you're a mason but if you are a Christian who is a Mason, I would ask you, why? And the answer that, well, we do good things, that's not enough. Your church does good things. So it's something I would counsel people to stay away from, Rose. I hope that helps. Let's go to Jeff on line one from San Antonio. Jeff, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. I'm the same Jeff. Probably my third call to you. Can't help it. <laughs> thanks, Jeff. Yeah, you're too much fun, you and Paula, and just just uh, really uh, appreciating you so much. Um, Thank you. Would you talk, talk to me a little bit about what is dispensationalism, and hmm. is it dangerous? Uh, what was the last word you said? Is it what? Is it is it is it dangerous? I mean, oh I've, no! I've heard okay, it. yeah, yeah. Th- thank you, uh, Jeff. Dispensation. I, I'm a dispensationalist. Calvary Chapel is a dispensationalist. What it means is simply that that we recognize from our study of the Bible that God works with people in different ways at different times in history. Jesus was a dispensationalist. I'll give you an example. When he went into the the synagogue and he opened the scroll and he read from the prophet Isaiah. Uh, he said, today this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, uh, he didn't read the whole passage. He just read part of it and stopped right there. Well, the reason he did that is because there is another dispensation to come in the future. So there was, and I'll just give you an example, there is a dispensation of law. God dealt with people uh, uh, with with the coming of Moses. God dealt with people according to the law. That's the dispensation of law. Um, now, of course, our dispensation, the new covenant Jesus promised at what we call the Last Supper, was this covenant of grace. God deals with his church now uh, by grace through faith. So they're just different methods of dealing with people at different times in history. 
uh, there is going to be yet another dispensation when God once again deals with Israel to fulfill the promises to Abraham. Uh, I think, um, and and I don't have the list of them before me, Jeff, but uh, I think most balanced dispensationalists uh, recognize seven dispensations. Uh, the problem is, and it can be a problem because you can get um, um, with some people who are called hyper dispensationalists and they'll look at the New Testament and find six or eight or ten different dispensations there. And I think that's the danger of it. We can get carried away with it. We have some callers to this show sometimes who try to sneak in and, and say, well, Jesus was only talking to Jews. Well, he was talking to Jews, but a lot of what he said was for us. Uh, they'll find different dispensations in the book of Acts. Anything that you do to an extreme, Jeff, anything that's out of balance is going to be dangerous to your walk with the Lord. But but dispensationalism in and of itself um, is a healthy, balanced view of Scripture. And from my perspective, Jeff, it's the only way that the Bible makes sense. If you've listened to this program, Jeff, you hear people will sometimes call and they'll get things that God says in the Old Testament, like the Sabbath worship and, and, and being circumcised, those kind of things. And, and if they don't understand, that was God dealing with his people, Israel, at a different time, in a different way than he deals with us. Well, then they take all of that baggage, sort of, and bring it into their Christian walk. So I just think it's really important that we do all things with balance, we look at the Bible in context, and uh, I think it's the only way that makes any sense. I'll give you one other example, Jeff. You can look at the Sermon on the Mount. Now, Jesus was speaking to Jews. He was a Jew, um, not yet having fulfilled the law. And we can look at the Beatitudes, Matthews chapter 5, 6, and 7. We can look at that, and we can just turn ourselves into pretzels, spiritually speaking, uh, trying to do all those things. If somebody strikes you on one cheek, give him the other cheek. If somebody wants your cloak, give him, give him uh, your head covering as well, those kind of things. Um, but that's not what the point of the Sermon on the Mount is. The point of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus coming to his own people, Israel, And he's trying to prepare them. If you want to get to heaven without believing in me, this is how you do it. Now, there are principles in the Sermon on the Mount that apply to us in spades. However, in in practical, obvious application, um, if your eye offends you, gouge it out. Uh, Obviously, he's not speaking to us literally in those cases. So we have to sort of understand the context with which Jesus was speaking. So don't uh, worry about it, Jeff. It is good. Uh, C.I. Schofield is a good guy to read. He is probably the most balanced dispensationalist I know. Um, um, one of my early Bibles was a C.I. Schofield study Bible. Uh, I don't typically like study Bibles, but his doesn't have a lot of notes about what it means, but he just makes references to the different methods of dispensationalism. So you can uh, Google C.I. Schofield, that's C-H-O-F-I-E-L-D, and you'll get a really healthy, balanced view of dispensationalism. Thank you, Jeff. 340-9585. We're inside three minutes here for this part of the break. Let me spend the last... uh, couple minutes of this reading something that was sent to me today about Pope Francis and a little boy. Uh, The email I got said, videos of the scene show the young child struggling to get out his question in front of a microphone and Pope Francis in Italian encouraging him to come closer and talk privately. After speaking quietly with the crying boy, the Pope shared the exchange with the small crowd after first asking the child for permission to do so. The boy, who the Pope called Emmanuel, asked if his dad, who had his children baptized, was in heaven, despite the fact that he was an atheist. The Pope said a boy that inherited the strength of his father also had the courage to cry in front of all of us. If this man was able to create children like this, it's true that he is a good man. Francis added that while the boy's father didn't have faith, he had a good heart, and that God had the heart of a father. What do you think? A father's heart? God has a dad's heart, the Pope said. And with a dad who is not a believer, but who baptized his children and gave them his uh, this bravery, do you think God would be able to leave him far from himself? 
Francis then asked the children in the crowd if God would abandon a good man like the boy's father, to which the children yelled back, no. Now, I hope everybody in this audience can hear how dangerous that is. Not only is it a lie, but it is the worst kind of theology, the worst possible kind of theology. And this is the man who is at least purportedly God's vicar on earth, God's spokesman. And he has not even a basic understanding of the scriptures. Worse than that, perhaps, he gave a little boy false hope, which is worse than no hope at all. So these are the things that our world, this is the answer to the question earlier, do do I believe an ecumenical approach is healthy? This is what being ecumenical in doctrine and in practice creates. Nobody's wrong. We can operate according to our feelings, and we don't have any responsibility to tell the truth. All of that, of course, is absolutely wrong. So thanks for sending this, whoever it was that sent it to me. Um, There's videos of this thing circulating. This is shameful. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in today's program. 340-9585 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Toll free, you can call us at 877-630-KSLR. We will be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of the program um 340-9585 for your live calls and questions ola called in during the break and asks this question when you pray in your mind or out loud does it get heard by god Ola, it doesn't make any difference if you pray in your mind, talking to yourself, or if you pray out loud. Uh, Your prayers will be heard by God. If your prayers are in the will of God, or if you are willing to accept the will of God, as Jesus said, nevertheless, thy will, not my will be done. You know, I I make that distinction, Ola. My my, um, immediate response is yes. It doesn't make any difference at all. Would you, you, you just talk to yourself, pray to yourself, or within yourself would be better, or talk out loud. Um, but I make that distinction because Jesus said that uh, if God hears our prayers, we have the assurance of knowing that what we've asked for we'll receive. Well, we also have to qualify that. We have to pray in the will of God. One of the reasons, again, that the gift of tongues is such a great gift from heaven. We have the opportunity to pray in the will of God, prompted by the Holy Spirit, by using His gift. On the other hand, you can pray it out loud, or you can say it to yourself, God, I want a new car, I want a new job, I want a new this. If it's not God's will, then those are prayers that he chooses not to hear. Now, obviously, God hears everything. But, I mean, if he if He chooses to hear, it's selective hearing, and I think that's very, very good for us. But it really doesn't matter at all, Ola, whether you just pray in your mind or you talk out loud. Uh, for me, sometimes talking out loud helps keep me focused a little bit. It keeps my mind from wandering. Um, there are teachers that falsely teach that if you don't pray out loud, then God isn't hearing your prayers. That's simply not true. I know people who um, don't want to pray out loud because they don't want the devil to hear. Now, we don't need to worry about that. If we're praying in the will of God and we're with Jesus, he's going to protect us from the enemy. But it has makes no difference at all whether we pray um, in our mind or whether we pray out loud. I think the key is just to pray just to pray. I actually like being quiet at the same time. I have to battle my flesh because when I'm quiet, my mind tends to wander a lot more than when I'm speaking to the Lord out loud. I'm able to concentrate a little bit better. So hope that answers your question. Ola's still praying for you. Prayed for you this morning and I'll pray for you tomorrow morning as well. God bless you. Here's a question from Quan. 
Uh, do Christians believe in tritheism? Uh, we do not, Quan. Now, for you in the audience, tritheism means um, the, the, the belief of three gods. This is a common um, um, mistaken charge often that Christians are accused of because we believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They will say, no, you're, you're praying to three gods or you're, you're believing three gods. We do not. It's very important you understand that there is one God, but he's manifest in three persons, three different personalities, three different purposes, and all three are designed to get us to access heaven. So we believe in the Father as one. Jesus shares the same exact attributes. Why? Because he is God. The Holy Spirit is God. And they all have three separate functions. So we believe in one God, three persons, and that's a really important distinction. Quan, if you don't believe in a triune God, then you have a God that is incapable of saving. I say this often on this program. I say it often when I'm teaching here at church as well. You have to have the right Jesus. Jesus saves. But Jesus is the Son of God who's God the Son. Jesus is the second person. He's not a junior partner who drew straws and came out with the bad one. Okay, you have to die. He sent the Holy Spirit to us to testify about him. Jesus, we know, came to reveal the Father because he's spirit and he lives in unapproachable light. Jesus made the Father real to us and only God could do that. So we definitely do not believe in tritheism. We are a group of believers who believes in one God present in three persons as revealed in the pages of Scripture. Let's go to San Antonio now, line one. Jose, Jose, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Hi. Uh, Jose, I called you like 20 times already. Okay, uh, good. First of all, um, I was born again recently, but but I'm still a uh, you know, top sinner. <laughs> and I wanted your, your input. <laughs> I wanted your input on... Uh, Matthew, okay, 12, chapter, Matthew 43 to 45. Did you say Matthew 12? Matthew 12, 43 to 45. Okay. And then the only reason I'm asking, because, you know, I, I feel like, you know, I have that in me, you know. Yeah. And I'm just trying to get rid of it. But yeah, Jose... You know, yeah, let, let me, I, wanna, I want you to listen very closely, okay? When you are born again, when you gave your heart to Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords came into your heart. You have to understand that he shares his space with no one. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Uh, John doesn't tell us he who is in us is greater than the other he who is in us. In Jesus, there's, there's only light. There's no darkness at all. So it's impossible, Jose, for you to be occupied by both the Spirit of God and an evil spirit. It's very, very important. When you understand that, then you have information, you have facts with which to fight the lies of the devil. Now, what it also means is that, and, and you said this, you're, you're still the top sinner, um, um, our flesh is not perfect. We're going we're gonna to mess up. We don't have to, but we're going to. And that's why 1 John 1, 9, Jose, is so important. When you mess up, it's not because an evil spirit made you do something. It's just because you gave in to temptation or you were weak or you were overcome or even deceived as a new believer especially. So 1 John 1, 9 says, If you confess your sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and purify you from all unrighteousness. So the moment you sin and you hate your sin, and I can tell that in your voice. I can, I can hear your heart, Jose, through your voice. What you, what you understand then 
is that when you mess up, you don't have to do guilt. You don't have to feel really bad. You don't even have to be afraid. You, You just say, Jesus, I don't want to do that anymore. I'm so sorry. And instantly, instantly you're clean and pure again. Instantly your fellowship with God is vibrant again. And the only one that will lie to you uh, is, is an enemy who wants to destroy you. Now, in this particular passage that you asked about, uh, Jesus is, again, his, his, the context of his ministry is to Israel. He was a Jew speaking to Jews. And he's explaining that when, and, and demon possession, you can read through the pages of, of the four Gospels, and there's a whole bunch of people that are demon-possessed. In fact, we know that Mary Magdalene was possessed by seven demons before she met Jesus. So Jesus is just explaining, when an evil spirit comes out of a man, it's cast out. And there were Jewish exorcists who would do these things. Um, it goes through arid places, seeking rest, and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left, speaking of the body. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with, takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. Now remember, Jose, this wicked generation that he's talking to are people that are being condemned by Jesus because of their unbelief. And Jesus is simply saying, look, because I came to you, because you should have known me, because you're expecting me, If you reject me, then your condition is going to be worse than at the beginning. And he used this illustration of of demons um, just to make that point. And and what he's saying is that when a demon is cast out, demons somehow, and we don't know why, they don't want to be, uh, they they need to be embodied. They they want to be embodied. And so when they're, they're just out there, they go back to the place. And it says if he finds it empty, by this... For you and for me, Jose, uh, what it means is that if if a spirit, if a demon spirit was ever in you, when he comes back to you, because now he's gone, because you found Jesus, Jesus found you. When he comes back to you, he's going to bring seven other spirits to torment you even more. But that's only if he finds the house unoccupied. Because you see, Jose, your house is occupied. Jesus lives there. There's a throne in your heart, and Jesus sits on that throne. And, and so the Spirit has no ability to, to, to cause you any more trouble in terms of being possessed. So you are not demon-possessed. You gave your life to Jesus. You cannot be demon-possessed. You gave your life to Jesus. The only thing, and I hope this is a picture that really works for you and helps you remember this when the enemy lies to you. All he can do It's like the big bad wolf. He can huff and he can puff and he can try to blow your house down, but he can't do it. He can lie to you, but you've got the truth. So, Jose, two things. Fall in love with your Bible. Really start digging in. As a new believer, you're at the most exciting time of your walk. It's like a kid going into a toy store, and Jesus just has all of this great information available to you. The second thing, and this is even more important than the first, the second thing is... Be with Jesus every day. Talk to him out loud as you're walking in the streets. When you go and sit down uh, to get something to eat somewhere, you get in your car, just Jesus is right there in the seat with you or, or in the next chair in a restaurant. But practice the presence of the Lord. And the enemy will not be able to do anything other than try to frighten you and lie to you. But Jesus will always be there to calm you. Jose, when I was a brand new believer... I was so excited about my new relationship with with Jesus that I did these things literally. That sounds silly now, embarrassingly so at times, but it's something I've been practicing for the whole 27 years I've been with Jesus. I'd sit down in a restaurant. It could be a McDonald's or it could be a nicer restaurant. I'd sit down and I would always set a place for Jesus. If I was with Paula, Jesus had a place at the booth. If I was by myself, Jesus was right across the table from me so I could talk to him. If I said, uh, if I want to go read my Bible or just spend some time in prayer, I'd set up a chair in the room that I was studying in because I wanted to be reminded that Jesus was there. And it helped me develop a pattern of knowing always that I was with Jesus. 
and I got used to talking to him all the time. It's never stopped. And when he's there with you, and when you're aware of his presence, and you're talking to him, believe me, the enemy's not going to be able to get in a word edgewise. So you don't have a demon spirit. I really need you to understand that based on the word of God when he returned. If you ever were demon-possessed, and I don't suggest that you were, but if you ever were, when he came back looking to come into his home with seven other demons, he found that house occupied by the strong man, the real strong man, and his name is Jesus. So, Jose, that's not what's happening to you. What you're doing is you're fighting with your sin. I'll give you one more thing to do tonight uh, when you hang up on this phone call. Jose, read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. By that I mean what you're going through is common to, to uh, millions upon millions of people who have believed in Jesus throughout the generations. Nothing is happening to you that hasn't happened to me or to others. And then the next line says, and God is faithful. It doesn't say Jose is faithful. In fact, the Bible says when you're not faithful, he is. God will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. You've got to know that when the temptations come, Jose, you can say no. You can be with Jesus. You can open your Bible. You can start talking to him and you won't give in to the temptation. And then he says this, when you are tempted, he'll always provide a way out, a way of escape. And all you have to do is take it. And Jesus is always going to be the one leading you to that place. So, Jose, I hope that helps. Does that make sense to you? It sure does, Pastor. Okay. Thank you for your candor and your ministry. I appreciate you. I will do it. And, Jose, I will be praying for you, so stay in touch, okay? I will. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Jose. Let's go to Mason County. I'm not sure where that is, but Ron is online too. Ron, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Ron, are you there? Yes, I am. Okay, hi, Ron. You bet. I always appreciate you, Pastor Ron. Thank you. Yes, can you hear me? I hear you well. No. Yeah, your your radio needs to be turned down because it's confusing you because we're on a delay. Yeah, my radio okay. turned off. All okay, right. thank you. Uh, I really enjoyed your comments talking about Jesus sitting across from you and packing him <laughs> with you and everything. I, I've yeah. had a wonderful walk here in the last few years with God, Jesus, and what I'm doing. It, but I do the same thing. But I cowboy for a living, and and so <laughs> I take him and we had a horse i got a horse back the other day and i just turned around and i said which horse are you riding you're riding your donkey or your white horse <laughs> see that's <laughs> how we practice his presence ron good for you uh, i love it and then i had the question i had for you the guy that was talking about the trinity when we're doing it had a guy asked me the other day when we get to heaven jesus is supposed to be sitting at the right hand of god and what are we going to see? Or what's your opinion on what are we going to see? Well, Ron, it, 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 it's, it's so big, it's so glorious that we can't even begin to imagine. We can't even begin to imagine. The Father is not a physical body like Jesus' is. So what we're going to see, and, and I, I can't explain this other than to say we're going to see the complete unfiltered unity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus is the one with the physical body, but we're going to be able to see the Father. We're not going to climb up on his lap and talk to him because he doesn't have a lap, but we're going to see, this is a staggering thing to even consider, we're going to see unapproachable light. We're going to see pure, blazing holiness. We're going to see the Holy Spirit and be aware of all the the work that he's done in and for our lives pointing to Jesus. So what we will see is the perfect unity of the Godhead, and we will see all three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. But what we're going to see is impossible for us to even understand. Uh, That's why Jesus had to become a man. It takes a man to reveal um, um, heaven to us, a man who happened to be God. But when we get there, what we will see uh, is the perfect unity, the perfect beauty, and the perfect glory of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in one. 
How can we see a spirit? Well, we will have glorified, resurrected bodies. We will be like Jesus. Now, one other thing to consider on here is that when it says that he's sitting at the right hand of God, it's a very Jewish idiom, meaning the right hand is always in Scripture the power hand of God. So that's, that's the source of power. Jesus is at the right hand of God, signifying that Jesus has all power and all glory and all authority given to him from his Father and executed by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's the best we can do. Paul said when he was taken to heaven in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he saw inexpressible things. He didn't have words. The Apostle Paul didn't have words. To, to explain what he saw. But then he told us, these are things that man is not permitted to tell. So no matter how he could have tried, he wouldn't have been able to because God said, nope, we walk by faith, not by sight here. When we get to heaven, we will walk by sight because we will be with him where he is. That's the best I can do, Ron. Wonderful answer. I appreciate you. Oh, I really do. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. God bless you. Appreciate it. Mason County's north of Junction. Good. He sounded like a cowboy, didn't he? I bet Jesus was a better horse rider than you are, Ron. <laughs> Can you imagine? I imagine he is. Yeah, I imagine he is. Hey, thank you for the call. I appreciate it very, very much. You bet. Three four three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Pat. He or she wants to know: Does God know everything that could possibly happen? Pat, the answer is. He knows what is going to happen. You see, there's no uncertainty with God. You and I, we have uncertainty because we live in this time and space dimension where all we can see is what's before us. I mean, we can look backwards and see what's happened, but we can't look forward and see what happened. By the way, that's why Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow, because, and the enemy's always trying to get us to focus on tomorrow. Uh, why? Because that's the place of uncertainty. But God knows everything that is going to happen because from God's perspective, the beginning, the end, it's all the same. It's already happened. So um, the things that we worry about, well, could this happen or could that happen? God already knows the answer. I'm going to quote my wife, the great, brilliant theologian, my wife. She says, God knows stuff. And Pat, when we're dealing with scary things, when we're worried about the future, all we have to do is rely on the fact that God knows stuff. We don't have to guess because God knows the answer. And all we have to do is be with him and trust him in the process. So, Pat, I hope that makes sense to you. God knows everything that is going to happen. He knows the future. He knows the past. He has your present in his hand. So you have to worry about something surprising God. Might surprise us, but nothing surprises God. 340-9585. Here is a question from Anne. Anne says, why is John the Baptist called the greatest man ever born? Well, Jesus said that. He said, uh, there's never been a greater man born of a woman than John the Baptist. It doesn't mean that John was perfect. We know he wasn't. It doesn't mean that he never had doubts. Crisis in faith, we know he did. But here's why. Because at the time Jesus said that, John's message was greater than any message ever. I mean, you go back to the Old Testament and the prophets were always talking about uh, the, the, the king, the Christ who would come. Who would come future tense. John, his message, when God started speaking to the people again, you know, John the Baptist was the first word that the people of Israel had heard from God for more than 400 years. That's why the whole countryside went out. People were so excited that God was speaking again. And the people didn't know who John was. But John's message was the greatest message ever. He wasn't like the prophets of old who said the Christ will come John's message was, he's here. He's here. He said, he must increase, I must decrease. Why? Because he's here, I'm not him. Lord, it is I who should be baptized by you. He knew exactly who Jesus was. 
and his message to a thirsty nation, not having heard from God for 400 years, is first the kingdom of God is at hand. But imagine John's heart that day Jesus walked up to the edge of the Jordan River and walked into the water to be baptized. He saw the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. It wasn't that the Holy Spirit is a dove, but, but looked like a dove. That was the, the sign that, that the Lord sent. Uh, and he knew. He's here. The kingdom of God is at hand. Not coming, but is at hand. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Now, remember his word and of preparation was repent. Repent. Get your heart right for God. Acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge your failures. And your heart will be ready for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's why he's called the greatest man born of a woman. It's because his message up to that time now, up to that time, his was the greatest message. But remember what he also said, Anne. He said that the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, again, that was in time and space. Why? Because John had not yet seen the fulfillment of the Christ's mission. So what it's saying is you and I, and we are in pretty good company because we have Jesus in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. So I hope that answers your question. How are we doing on time? Oh, not time for another? Okay. Um, tomorrow night, uh, can I do this? And, and I'm not, this is not self-serving. I don't make anything for this. But, but I still want people to listen to the message that I did last Wednesday night, 2 Samuel chapter 9. Go to calvaryessay.com. I promise you it'll be worth your time. I promise, especially for those of you who've had a rough life, you've been dropped. Listen to that message. God will bless you, I promise. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Find somebody and tell them Jesus loves them. I'll see you tomorrow at 4. God bless. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.